Hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are joining us, whether you are online or here on site. Listen, we have a great crowd here today, and we've got people worshiping from all over the country right now in our online community. So if you would, if you're here in person, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family? So awesome to have all you guys with us. And we are launching a new series today, which I am super excited about, called Hacked. Because we do not want for Satan to hack into what God intended for our good. It's a series on relationships. We're talking about parenting and children and when it comes to marriage and all sorts of stuff, family issues. And so it's going to be a great series, very practical. And I don't think we could start it any better than the speaker we have here today. We have a guest speaker. His name is Dr. Jim Burns, and he is a well-known, nationally known speaker and author who speaks on the subject of marriage and family, doing it God's way. He has written over 20 books that have been published. He has a radio program called Homeward that uh, is on over 800 radio stations, and he has over a million listeners a day listen to his radio program. And like I said, he's well-known everywhere, speaks at churches all over, and we are very fortunate to have him here today. But more than anything else that I could talk about, about. He is truly a humble guy who loves Jesus, and he truly wants to help families do their home life God's way. And so I know you will be blessed by what he has to share with you today. So if you would, put your hands together and give a big first church welcome to Dr. Jim Burns. All right. Thank, thank you, Chad. Hey, I just need to tell you, I love this church. I love this church. I told Chad at pizza last night that I thought his message on Easter was one of the best messages I've ever heard on Easter. Is that right? I mean, was he great? But then I meet Matt. He's a star. Uh, your worship team's unbelievable. And actually, one of the reasons I'm here is because of another staff member, Brian Champ. So my dad uh, was married to my mom for 53 years, and uh, he became a widower. And his grandma was married to her husband for many, 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 many years. And my dad and his grandma had known each other for over 50 years, and they got married. So I'm kind of part of the family, okay? So Brian called and said, Uncle Jimmy, can you come? And I said, I would be thrilled. And then I didn't realize just how cool this place is. I mean, you're, you made a great decision to be here. And uh, we're going to talk about family today. And, so, and we're going to actually start this series called Hacked. And um, you know what? Our culture is kind of hacking families, and no family is perfect. I didn't come from a perfect family by any means. And then I married Kathy, who didn't come from a perfect family, and we thought it was going to be easy because we were Christian, and we became Christian at 16, although we came from non-Christian families, and it was hard. And we realized that we had to either, well, the Bible says you inherit the sins of a previous generation to the third and fourth generation, and we realized we were either going to 
recover or repeat. And that first year was a really hard year for us. And then we went, we would be terrible parents and, um, and actually terrible in marriage. And we decided, no, we're going to recover. And it's the hardest thing we've ever done. And it's also the best thing we've ever done because what we wanted to do was change the trajectory of our family system. And uh, we're seeing that happen before our eyes. And that's incredible. And you can do that too. So when the bald-headed guy from California comes to talk to you about parenting, don't think I think the family is perfect. I don't think your family's perfect, and I know mine's not. And I know we want to get to Scripture, but I've got to quote Disney, okay? I was goofy at Disney when I was a kid working at Disney. And so I want to quote Lilo and Stitch, okay? Are you ready for it? This is my family. It may be small. It may be broken, but it's still good, okay? And so we're going to think about that. No families are perfect, so I don't, this is a no-guilt-free message and interestingly enough, as I see some young people in here and I see some older people who maybe you've launched your kids already, the thing I want to say is that for every single one of us, it is so important for us to be in this series so we can be better at family. And, and I wish that I would have been in a, a worship service where they talked about what we're going to talk about today. So very, very key. Now, I've got a number in my mind that I want to ask you, does anybody know what the number 936 means? Anybody know? 936. That's amazing. We'll talk later. <laughs> 936 means that from the day a child is born, these young children right here, you're not young, I realize, the day they were born, they had 936 weeks until they launched to adulthood. Now, they're almost ready to launch. But it only is 936 weeks. Isn't that mind-blowing? That from the time a baby is born until the time they actually graduate from high school, they're 18, they become adults, even though they say they're acting like adults, they're not always acting like adults, you're still taking care of their cell phone bill and insurance and things. 936 weeks, okay? So this is James. Look at that beautiful kid. This is my grandson on the day he was born, 936 weeks, and he would have launched, he would launch. He's six years old now. Time goes by so fast. And the Bible even talks about your days being numbered. This kid has a different life than even my children. My daughter, Christy, that's her child. My daughter, Christy, who's in her 30s, she was raised in a different world because we were six and we were eight and we were four and we were 18 and we were 16, 14, but we were never their age because they experienced so much so young. And also, they have to experience a lot more stuff than we did. For example, let's take the greatest distributor of internet pornography. It would be this thing right here. So we didn't have this thing when I was growing up. Was there pornography? Sure, but it was in like books and things and magazines, right? And so today, the average kid will see pornography at age 11. Uh, boys, actually right under 11, at 10, you can Google me on this, but it's right in the 10.8, and girls just moved from the 12-year-old to now to the 11. So we'll say 11. So again, the world has changed. And all of us get all hacked about that. And maybe the culture has hacked us, but the fact is, is this kid, there's some great news for this kid because he can learn how to navigate this as long as he's got some help from the rest of us as adults. This here, I'm going to introduce you to, she's beautiful. Her name is Emily, and she is five years old. Anybody have a five-year-old connected to their life right now somewhere around? Okay, sure. She's only got 676 weeks, and then she's launched, okay? Now, again, she's a child, but yet quite quickly it moves. Now, the next one is Jeremy, good, handsome guy. He's 10, 416. That means he's over halfway done to launching into adulthood. So you start thinking about 10-year-olds, and you go, oh, my gosh, they're going to be adults like in what, eight years? Oh, no, see? And then, of course, this is the beautiful Ashley, and Ashley 
is a beautiful girl. She's got 52 weeks. What grade are you in? Senior in high school, so you have a lot less than 52 weeks, and then you're going to become an adult. Now, is he ready to be an adult? He might be thinking that. (laughs) He's shaking his head no. But the truth is, is that time goes by fast. And there was a time when, you know, his parents were, you know, changing his diaper, and soon he'll be changing his parents' diapers, and that's just how it goes. But I want to say that because time goes so fast, we have to be aware of making every moment count when it comes to family. There's a video I want to show you. And if you've been a part here of the church of child dedications, you've seen this video. It's an amazing video. It's called It's Just a Phase. Take a look at it. So you got to make every day count with your family. It's so key. Nothing really is more important. I think for a season I thought maybe my work and my job was more important, but nothing's more important. Right? So you can become the transitional generation. Now, all of you didn't come from dysfunction like 
what I mentioned ahead of time. But if you did, you can become the transitional generation. I know that. And also, as we look at faith issues, there's some really good news we're going to look at today. So what is the most often quoted scripture in the Bible? Give me, shout it out. Somebody shout it out for me. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Awesome. You're wrong. That was hard for me to do that because like you're so nice and you said it so nice, but you're wrong. I'm not a Bible theologian, but I know that that's not the most often quoted scripture. Somebody else, give me another one. Now, these, none of these guys are going to shot one because I just put her down, okay? <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans for you. I'm only saying that because that's exactly what the other service said. No. It's a lot easier to say no to you. I'm just telling you that right now. Actually, you're in the right testament. So I absolutely know what the most often quoted scripture is. And actually, we're going to walk on holy ground today because the most often quoted scripture is not one we would think of. And the reason it's not one we would think of is because we as Christians, we would take those and and others, and we would have a plan for our family, but the Jews all had the same plan, and still today still have the same plan. So this, what I'm about to speak on, and the scripture that we're about to look on, is by far the most often quoted scripture. You know why? Because today, in the day of Jesus, in the day of Moses, and even before the time the Bible was written orally, this scripture was the plan and the purpose for the Jewish people. They only have one plan and purpose, and this is it. So let's take a look at it, okay? It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, it sounds familiar to a lot of us. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. So in other words, they took a stand and said, There is one God, and we're going to love him with faithfulness and fidelity, Right? Secondly, it goes on to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be written upon your hearts, impress them on your children. It doesn't say that it's the job of the synagogue. It doesn't say it's the job of the church. It actually says it's the job of the family to impress it on the children, right? Now that makes it a little tough for some of us because we don't feel as comfortable doing it as someone who's trained. See, it goes on to say, even tell you how to do it. Talk about it when you sit at home. So in other words, bring God into your home. When you walk along the road, they walked, we drive, so maybe it's driving or walking. When you lie down, so in other words, when you go to bed and when you get up, so you're bringing Christ into your home. Goes on to tell you to tie them as symbols on your hands, so bring the word of God to work, because your hands, you work with your hands in those days. Bind them on your foreheads, put the word of God in your mind. Also, It says, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In Israel today, every Orthodox home has it. We have it. We're not Jewish, but we have have something called the mezuzah, and you can Google it and look it up. A mezuzah is simply a a, a little tiny, like ours is olive wood, and it's about that big like that, and on the inside of every mezuzah, there are millions of them, on every, by the way, every hotel in Israel, but on the inside, it's the Shema because it's kind of their holy of holies. It's the way they do life. It's the way they've stayed true to God, see. So imagine this, that Mary gives birth to Jesus in a manger, and then what does she do? She picks him up, and usually it was the mom, and the mom would recite the Shema. And then every morning they would recite the Shema, and every evening it was very familiar to them. At the bar mitzvah, or the bat mitzvah, which is age 13, because that was adulthood for them, they would then stand and rise in front of the synagogue, and they would recite the Shema. Every, every death and every birth, the Shema is quoted. So again, it's their big deal. It's not ours, but it's their big deal. But it can be ours, is what I'm saying. 
So what Jesus did is he was always being tested by the leaders uh, and the Pharisees and the you know, government people. And so there were some leaders coming to Jesus. This is found in the book of Matthew 22. And they're testing Jesus. And they asked this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, they were testing him because really every Jew would only answer with one, with one answer. Jesus answered it right by saying, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you know what they all did? They went, oh, okay, maybe he is one of us. Because they were confused. Who is this guy? Is he doing it right? Is he doing it wrong? Is he honestly who he says he is? What's all this about? But then Jesus changed the Shema. Wow. And Shema, by the way, means to listen. So this is why they call it the Shema. He went on to say, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's not in Deuteronomy. That's in Leviticus 19.3. So Jesus tweaked it a bit. That could have got him killed because he was playing with their holy of holies in the scripture. It goes on to say, and all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we call this the Jesus Creed. Our family, we taught our kids, love God, love your neighbor. In fact, your theme here, your, your phrase at the church is very similar to this. That's what we do. And what we go, as we go back to the Shema and think about it, what we do is we, we realize, as I mentioned, it's faithfulness and fidelity to God. It's how we transmit faith and love to our children. Why? We live it, and then we impress it on them. And then how we do it, we do it in the home. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not connected to church. No, church is very important. But who, who, who is the most important? What, a research that, what do you think research says, both secular and Christian? Research says is the most important um, person in a child's life, they say, uh, uh, spiritually. You know who they say? Mom, by far. Mom's here and then you dads, we're here. We need to kind of like, you know, move up the ladder a little bit. Then it's grandmas and grandpas. You think you're done? Oh no, grandmas and grandpas, you're not done. In fact, many would say that it's grandma and grandpa who even sometimes takes the lead here. Aunts, uncles, friends, and peers, and then the church. See, so the church is important. It's just not as important as family, and that actually is kind of what we're seeing in the scripture. So, you know, the culture is hacking it, and we go, what are we going to do? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take over some of the responsibility. Here's an interesting fact. Lay on this fact for a minute. 65% of these beautiful kids, I'm just picking on them because they're here in the front, but 65% of these kids in a good church like this, they'll leave the church by the time they, after they graduate from high school in that first year, 65%. Terrible. But listen to this. There is a 300% better chance that they'll stay in the church if there are faith conversations in the home. And I'm not talking about preachy luxury if there are faith conversations in the home. Now, now I wasn't raised in a, in a home where we ever had faith conversations, see? So my youth pastor was so much more influential to, in my life on that ladder. That didn't mean that my parents didn't influence me and my parents weren't horrible people that just wasn't a part of our family's DNA. And what I found when I was a student pastor years and years ago when I actually had hair um, was that the students who actually had faith conversations at home, they did better when they graduated. So this says it to any of you parents who have younger kids, you grandparents who have you know, younger grandkids, whatever. Is No, this is, this is key and critical for us. So what does this scripture teach us? First of all, it teaches us that discipleship is in the home and we do it intentionally. So discipleship happens intentionally and it happens from the home, right? And so we got to be intentional about this. 
Uh, the scripture says, and this is a scripture on discipleship, it says, in the things that you have heard me say, uh, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men and women who will also teach others also. So what I'm learning, I'm teaching my children, my children are teaching it to their children, and generation to generation, that's how it works. So we have to take this seriously. And yet most of us don't feel comfortable at all realizing that discipleship happens in the home because we're not very good at this because in home, what happens at home? We bump into each other. We have arguments. They see us at us. They see everybody sees each other at their worst. And yet again, we're called to do this. And actually, scientific research shows us that when we have faith conversations, it works. Isn't that amazing? So our family, we started doing family devos, and uh, we did it late in the game because we didn't have Kathy and I. We didn't grow up with any of that stuff. So I think our kids were like nine, seven five when we started doing family devos and so I took the lead and I took uh I'd do it for like 20 minutes and I'd talk to the kids kind of preach at them for 20 minutes and then they would go are we done yet and then Kathy goes hey no offense but they do not like your family devos so being the good passive aggressive husband father that I am I said well fine you do it then she has a background in early childhood so she goes okay I will that night she goes doesn't say the word family devo. That's a bad word in our, 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 in our house. So she goes, we're going to have some family time. And uh, she brings out a big you know, jug of red vine licorice, and she brings out some chocolate, and the kids are like, awesome. Finally, we got something going on that's not dad kind of preaching at us. And, then, and I'm like, this che- that's cheating. Jesus wouldn't have had chocolate or red vines. That's not good. So she puts it out on the floor, and I, then I went, I'll have a red vine. And she says, okay, let's do a play. And the girls were all ham. So I have all daughters in my life, so there's no hormones or drama in our life, right? And uh, so anyway, what takes place is she goes, let's, let's do a play. And you guys decide. So Christy goes to page one, my oldest, and she goes, we'll do this one, Adam and Eve. And then they get in a fight because no one wanted to be Adam. I mean, this is like a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. Boys still have cooties. You guys don't think boys have cooties now, do you? No. You, you think they do. Okay. Well... We'll have to talk to you afterwards. But <laughs> so they don't want to be the boy. Finally, I go, Christy, you are Adam. You're the oldest, and Adam is older than Eve by a little bit. So you're, and she goes, can I wear a mustache? Absolutely, you can have a mustache. Then we find out later, she put on a mustache, and it was permanent marker, and it was a problem for the next day at school, but <laughs> another story. And then I look at the two girls, and they both wanted to be Eve, and there's only one Eve in the story, so I apologize to Chad ahead of time because you know, he would be much better about the Bible than me. And I had to apologize to my wife because I said, okay, Rebecca, you are Eve, and Heidi, you are Yvette, Eve's little sister. And Kathy goes, that's not in the Bible. And I go, we're desperate here, okay? So we're going to have Yvette. Well, what's she going to do? It's not in the story. They'll make it up. That'll be fine. So they go into the soundproof booth, which was our bedroom, and they're like, all the, they're not even practicing the play. They're, you know, doing dress up. So out walks Christy. She's got her permanent marker mustache. She's got a hat on because I always wear a hat. I surf and my bald head gets uh, sun uh, cancer type stuff. And she has on my flowered shirt. And I go, why are you wearing this flowered Hawaiian shirt uh, somebody had given me? And she goes, well, it's the garden. And in her mind, Hawaii is like a garden, right? So it's Hawaii. So I went, okay, that works for me. She stand over there. And then Heidi, the youngest five-year-old, she walks out and she is in a Hawaiian hula outfit. And again, they're going with a Hawaii motif. So she's got like a grass skirt that she got when she was three in Hawaii. And, you can, and she's five now, so you can still see her pink panties through it. So that's not good. And she's got two coconuts just 
dangling there. I mean, she's five, and they're like down here. So she walks by, and I take the coconuts, I strategically place them. I mean, they're not going to last, because it's not like she has anything to hold the coconuts up on. I can't believe I just said that at church. (laughs) So she puts, she does that, and then by this time, now one coconut is on her shoulder, and one coconut is really haggard. It's like, we're weird. And she goes, is it time for me to do the hula? I go, I look at Kathy. She goes, yeah, do the hula. I'm sure Yvette did a hula in the Garden of Eden. So she does this little hula thing, and then we clap, and she's like, okay, this is great. I'm going, this is so non-biblical. I can't believe we're doing this. And then Becca walks out, my middle child, with an emphasis on middle. Are any of you middle children? We don't care. Um, (laughs) Just kidding, bro. (laughs) Okay. Um, How many of you are firstborn? Yay. How many of you are the lastborn? Yay. How many of you are middle children? No, we don't care. Um, But anyway, so Becca comes out. She's wearing nothing. She is stark naked. And she was the kid who, like, when she was one and she learned how to walk, she would take off her diaper and streak. Anyway, so she's, like, defensive, all defensive. Now she's a Christian counselor, which is interesting. And um, she puts her hands out on her hips and waiting for us. And I said, well, tell us about what you're not wearing, Becca. And she goes, it's right here in the Bible. It's a storybook, but... It's right here in the Bible, she wasn't wearing clothes. It says she was naked. And I went, well, you got a point there. But if you ever do this at church, you got to put on clothes. Because even in the storybook, there's like leaves in strategic places. And, uh, and we had the little deal, and we ate chocolate, and we ate red vines, and it changed our family. Because we did it every week. Now, not that. But even as they got older to be the age of these high school students, you know, we talked about other things. And we actually did it. We have a, a jacuzzi, a spa in our, in our house with a little pool where we live in California and so that we'd sit in the spa and we'd, we'd do this for a short time. They liked it, but it always had food and we always promised it would be 20 minutes or less. So what I'm saying to you is you can do that. No, you may not know Greek or you may not know how to, you know, exegete a scripture. That, you're not taught like that, like Chad is. But you can do that. And you can have conversations when a fire truck goes by and you say, hey, let's just stop and pray. When the cemetery, when a funeral happens and you pull over the side, you can do those things as a family. And that's actually what I'm talking about when I'm talking about discipleship begins at home. And it also begins intentionally. You know, one other side point real quickly Discipleship is also teaching your children healthy morals and values. Again, I could do a whole message on this, but we're so weird about the culture today with morals and values, and we should be. It has hacked our biblical values. But are we just going to complain about it and not do anything about it? Or are we going to take the lead with this? So let's take sex education. I mean, let's just talk about it. How many of you received good, positive, healthy, value-centered sex education from your parents when you were growing up? How many? I see one lady just like that. Look at these guys. You're, you're going like this. Are your parents here? Okay, good. So, Because like that, they'd go, you know, um, they probably think they did a better job than you do. Um, but not many hands, maybe less than 10. But here's research, both Christian and non-Christian research. More positive, value-centered sex education that kids receive from home, the less promiscuous and the less confused they'll be. But because our generation didn't do that, our parents didn't do that for us. We don't do that for our kids. And yet what I'm saying is, let's do it. Now, again, if you have a 16 or a 17-year-old, don't sit them down today at lunch and say, well, we were supposed to talk to you, and they're going to go, what do you want to know, mom or dad? You know, that kind of a thing, right? <laughs> but the point is, 
we've got to have these kinds of conversations. And not just from a negative viewpoint, God made your body. God made our sexuality. And he, when he created male and female, it was very good. I see him doing that. We've got to teach our students, put the goal out there. But we can't just say, you know, go do it or hope that the church is going to do it. The church will have some conversations. But no, it's like we have a million kids, more than a million kids, who've made a commitment to this. In honor of God, my family, my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. That's awesome. That's courageous for this group because they're not being raised that. that they're not getting that from other places. But it's because parents had the courage to do something like that. You do it four ways, and these are all scriptural. You honor God with your body. You renew your mind for good. I tell students and adults that the most powerful sex organ is not their, their private parts. It's their mind. The Bible says, turn your eyes from worthless things. That's the third one. It's in Psalm 119. And also, guard your heart. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. It's our job to do that. According to the Shema, we impress it on our children. Are they awkward? Like, I write books on this stuff, right? And my daughters, when they, they said, Dad, when you started talking to us about this, your bald head sweat, your ears turned red, you were awkward. And I was. I mean, I could speak to anybody on this stuff and not be awkward. And then, well, maybe you think I'm awkward. Um, but my kids would go, no, you, were so, you stuttered, Dad. I did. I get it. You still have the conversation, people. Because if you don't, there's a whole lot of people who would like to that have a very different view than you. So, so it's intentional. Also, as we think about this, we have to understand that what we have to do as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, and even as young Christ followers, we have to lead. We don't talk enough about leading from the home. And I'm not talking about the man leads this and the woman leads this. I'm just simply saying we need to lead. And I think we lead in three ways, and I'll close with these three. Number one is we need to lead with integrity. The Bible says that the man or the woman of integrity, here's the scripture right here, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. What we need to do is we need to walk securely so that the next generation within that 936 group, that they walk securely. How do they walk securely? They walk securely when we walk securely. How do you do it? With integrity. They're not looking for perfection. Integrity doesn't mean perfection. It means authenticity, doing it right, doing the best you can, bringing them along. If you did something crazy, apologize, adults, but take the lead. I wrote a book called Doing Life with Your Adult Children. Keep your mouth shut and the welcome mat out pretty much describes the book. And one of the things that I say to parents is, is I say, give your kids the passport to adulthood. And they go, but they're not acting like adults. Nevertheless, give them the passport. Take the lead. They don't know how to be an adult. You don't know how to parent an adult, so it's time to give them that lead. I also say that unsolicited advice is usually taken as criticism. That's what they'd say. So, you know, get out of the advice business. Become, you were a day-to-day -day parent, you're now not if you have older kids. It doesn't mean you're not the parent, it just means you do it differently. Lead, lead, lead. Secondly, besides integrity, lead with margin in your life. And what I mean by this is, I think that the breathless pace in which families live is killing the family. And I'm not saying that we should all become people who move to Wyoming and live in a commune. That isn't going to work. But what I am saying is, 
we have to be people who are not so overcommitted that we're underconnected. Many of us are so overcommitted doing even good things that we're underconnected. I was speaking at the Promise Keepers Pastors Conference. I did a number of years with Promise Keepers, and this was at Diamondback Stadium. And I was just about ready to go on, and I was talking to the master of ceremonies. His name is Jack Hayford, a hero in my life. And I said, Jack, what's the secret to your leadership success? Major leader, pastor of a mega church, um, president of a university, worldwide speaker, writer, whatnot. And he said, without a moment's hesitation, he said, well, you know, Jim, I've had to say no to good things to say yes to the most important things. I said, well, what are the most important things? He said, well, of course, it's my relationship with God. But then he said, it's my relationship with my wife. And then it's my relationship with my kids and my grandkids. I thought, here was a guy who was so successful in work, but he's saying, I had to say no to some good things to say yes to the most important things. Margin. You know, when I have margin in my life, I had somebody say to me one time, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And when I have margin in my life and I'm too busy, I don't like the person I'm becoming. But I have three questions that I ask often. Do I like the person I'm becoming? Do you like the person you're becoming? Might be just because you're too busy. Number two, I ask this question all the time. Is the work of God I'm doing destroying the work of God in me? Or another way of saying it is, is my heart for God growing or shrinking? Many times, our heart for God is shrinking because we're so busy. And then thirdly, am I only giving my family my emotional scraps? Am I only giving Kathy my emotional scraps? I mean, I made a commitment 47 years ago to to be married to that woman. And I love this young woman. You can tell she's not young. We've been married 47 years. But sometimes I give her my emotional scraps because I'm too busy. Sometimes I've given my kids my emotional scraps. I don't want to do that. And so what I have to do is lead by putting some margin in my life. Kathy used to say all the time, we have a Messiah, he's doing very well, don't replace him. And she's right. And I say that to soccer moms all the time. Hockey dads, whatever. And then lastly is lead from the eternal perspective. Lead from the eternal perspective. You can parent, you can grandparent, you can do life from the non-eternal perspective, or you can do it from the eternal perspective. When my dad was dying, he, um, actually, you know, Brian Champ would call him Grandpa Bob, and when he was dying, and uh, Virginia was there, his grandma, and me, and uh, we're kind of having this conversation about, you know, life. You know, dad didn't talk about his 401 and his retirement or politics, Dad talked about wanting a right relationship with God and a right relationship with his loved ones. He never talked about the stuff that sometimes we put all of our energy around. And so at the end, and studies show this, that when people are dying, whether they're Christian or not, they have two issues. They want a right relationship with God and they want a right relationship with their loved ones. And my dad at the end of his life basically taught me that I am to live my life and I am to lead from the eternal perspective. And so tomorrow... Uh, I'm flying back to California today, but tomorrow could be a really heavy work day, and I'm picking up my grandson, James, because now we've got 700 weeks with him, and I'm taking him out to Chick-fil-A after kindergarten. And it may be great, and it may not be great in terms of we may have an amazing conversation, or we may talk about burping and frogs. We'll probably talk about burping and frogs. (laughs) You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my energy into that kid. Because long after I'm dead, nobody's going to think about those books that I wrote or that I've got a PhD. What they're going to think about is, did this guy 
put energy into his children and grandchildren and into his marriage. Food for thought. Now, again, this is the beginning of the series. And look at our culture is hacking it, this family stuff. But don't just whine about the culture. This is good news. This is something we can do in order to help our families succeed. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you so much for the chance to be together. Thank you for a church that cares this much about family. Thank you for a church with the kind of talent and the ability to, uh, to do life and do, work, uh, uh, do the work to make families succeed. And Lord, I pray specifically for anybody here who might be hurting with their own family that something really tough is going on. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd come alongside them. Thank you. Thank you so much for our family. It may be small and it may be broken, but in your eyes, it's still good, and it's your way of redeeming the world. Jesus Christ comes into the world and helps families succeed. Amen.